Chapter Number Six of Flowers and Ferns in Their Haunts by Mabel Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Poisonous Plants. Touch not, taste not, is written against but comparatively few plants of the United States. Among the four thousand and odd species, either natives, introduced weeds, or garden escapes, growing between Newfoundland, the southern boundary of Virginia, the Atlantic Ocean, and the region of the Great Plains, not more than thirty can be asserted positively to contain elements of danger to man or to beast from either the tasting or handling. Small as the list of the condemned is, it is none the less important that it should be made public and each name stowed away carefully in the memory with the other danger signals of existence. It also seems very strange that these forbidden plants have not been presented as a group, the only satisfactory way to memorize them in any of the popular botanies. In fact, it was not until three years ago that the United States Department of Agriculture, itself continually reminded of the importance of the matter by reports of the real and oftentimes merely alleged cases of plant poisoning, sent to it, gathered such statistics as were provable, and through the medium of a farmer's bulletin, V. R. Chestnut's concise summary of the thirty poisonous plants of the United States was issued. But widely as the pamphlet was distributed, it has failed to reach many of the very people to whom it would be of the greatest use, the increasing band of nature lovers, taking the woodpath, perhaps for the first time, to find bird, flower, and fern in their haunts, and also the ardent amateur farmer, both male and female. Flower Hat never dreamed of evil, when one day, in following me along a narrow road between wet meadows and woods, she broke off a branch from a harmless-looking shrub to use for brushing away the gnats. In a few hours, however, her mischievous gray eyes were closed tight, her face looked as if it had been in collision with a hive of very angry bees, and poison sumac was literally branded in her memory. Poison ivy, with its hairy climbing stem and compound leaves, growing distinctly in threes, had hitherto been the only plant that said, hands off, to her. A man of affairs, also the maker of a country home, imbued with the love of wild nature and the desire to re-establish the plants, that had once lived in a strip of lovely river woods and wild meadows that he owned, set out many hundred plants of mountain laurel and wild rhododendron one autumn. A mild day early the next spring made him think that his young Jersey cows would enjoy an airing outside of the protected winter stockyard, so he dropped the bars between the cultivated and the wild. The cows trooped out eagerly enough, and seized the evergreen laurels, the only green sprigs in sight. In a few hours, my friend, as an agriculturist, was blaming his thoughtlessness and regretting the despoiling of his shrubs. That night, the fine young cows were discovered lying on their stable floor, seemingly blind, breathing with labor, and all in some of the various stages of drowsiness and stupor that precede death by poison. Then, 
that young man after he had returned from a four-mile race on horseback for the veterinary surgeon and had stayed up all night obeying his peremptory orders buried his best cow the next day in his capacity of stock breeder he then vowed that he would learn something about the poisonous plants of his own country even time of year who has handled the touch-knots from boyhood confessed not long since nothing used to poison me and now for some years back ivy and sumac both does and i can't walk on the near side of a brush heap where swamp sunflower is drying without sneezing and coughing fit to choke showing that even he to the manner born did not understand the workings of these acrid plant juices or know that to be once immune does not mean always to be so for in middle and late life many succumb who were invincible as it happens nearly all of these plants are distinctive and easy of identification while the blossoms and foliage of many place them among the flowers of landscape value to clearly memorize the names and attributes of such of them as are likely to injure either ourselves or the cattle grazing about our homes it is best to divide them into two groups the tribes of touch-not and taste-not first let it be distinctly understood that those plants are excluded from the list from which poisonous or narcotic drugs are distilled but which in themselves are not directly poisonous unless consumed in such large quantities that the taking of them could not be regarded as accidental probably the greatest amount of suffering comes to the novice in field lore from the first of the groups the second class is fatal to open-mouthed children whose chief test of anything is by taste and also to the stranger within our gates who is constantly eating unknown roots berries or mushrooms from a fancied resemblance to some edible species of his own country the taste-knots are also especially dangerous to the cattle-raiser of the great plains who in the poisonous plants constantly found in grazing lands has presented to him many knotty problems the tribe of touch-knot we associate the word sumac with rocky hillsides covered by abruptly branching shrubs varying in height from dwarf bushes to small trees that wear in summer either shiny or velvety compound green leaves of many leaflets and thick pyramids of yellowish-green flowers held erect at the ends of branches in autumn berry and leaf rival each other in an intensity of crimson color yet three of the nomad tribe of touch-not are harbored by this family and bring unmerited disgrace upon the heads of innocent brethren poison ivy poison oak and poison sumac or elder as it is locally called are true sumacs and yet possess differences which should prevent any danger of confused identity the poison ivy is a vine entirely too common from canada to florida and from the atlantic coast to utah it is made up of a tough woody stem thickly bearded with hairy air roots by which it climbs over rocks fences and to the tops of high trees with leaves composed of three leaflets only 
and wears in June loose clusters of dull greenish flowers growing from the leaf axles, soon replaced by glassy, opaque berries of a similar hue. Thus equipped, it pursues its career of mingled beauty and vice. Being myself as yet immune to its poisoned breath and touch, I cannot but dwell upon its beauty, for it rivals the five-leaved Virginia creeper, in being one of the two most truly decorative vines of New England, making up what it lacks in grace of growth by an abrupt vigor. It covers stone heaps and tumble-down walls, lends new foliage to half-dead trees, and turns fence-posts into grotesque plant-forms. For when it reaches the top of a support and can climb no further, it promptly abandons its trailing habits and turns into a shrub, sticking out short arms in every direction until, in some places, one may find miles of rail fences with every post decorated by this bushy crown. The berries, though not sufficiently attractive to be dangerous to humanity, are eaten by many winter birds, and the seeds so scattered establish the vine more firmly each year. For the only method taken by townships to eradicate the plague is to cut it annually with a stub scythe where it grows on the highways, a proceeding that merely increases its strength of root. When autumn comes, poison ivy chooses its colors of mellow yellows, salmon pink, bronze, and crimson with discretion. Individual vines often keeping distinct tones, some always turning plain yellow, and others varying from pink to crimson, without a single yellow tinge. Alack, how we shall miss this vine in the landscape when twentieth-century magic, perhaps, shall have taught us to outwit it. So much for beauty. Now for the bad side of its character. Poison ivy is full of an acrid oil, which does not easily evaporate upon the drying of the plant that generates it, and which, like other oils, does not dissolve in water. Consequently, when it is liberated from the leaf tissue, and the merest touch will do it, this oil at once permeates the skin of its victim and spreads its irritation on the surface, and not through the blood, as was once supposed. To the susceptible, a tingling of the skin may be the first warning that they have even been in the vicinity of the plant for to absolutely bruise the leaf is unnecessary with those easily affected. A mere whiff of the oil, slightly volatile as it is, being sufficient to transmit the poison. The tinkling sensation is soon succeeded by watery blisters set deep in the toughened cuticle. These blisters are often thickest between the fingers, behind the ears, or in folds of skin where the oil remains undisturbed. Of course, it is best to avoid poison ivy, but it is hardly possible so to do if one desires to learn more of nature than can be seen from a piazza or from a neatly graveled garden walk. In fact, even there this vine may be found sneaking its way along an arbor where a myrtle warbler seeking shelter on a wintry day has dropped the seed. So, after having done your best to shun the vine, with a hairy, woody stem, three leaflets, and greenish-white berries, try to rid the skin as quickly as possible of the oil when once it has touched you. 
If you are by a roadside or in a field, take a handful of dust or fresh earth and rub the spot of contact thoroughly. Water will avail little in removing such persistent oil. This is an invention of my own for absorbing the oil that I use with great success upon my field companions. Flower hat, having many times been saved by it. Then, when you can reach a drug shop, have prepared a saturate solution of sugar of lead in 75 parts alcohol, alcohol cuts oil, to 25 parts water. Be sure that this prescription is marked poison and ornamented with a red skull and crossbones. Before you take a clean bit of cotton, sop your afflicted spots with the solution and put the rest away for future use. Sugar of lead is deadly when taken internally, but as an unfailing remedy for the horrible irritation of ivy poison, it is a clear but exceptional case of two wrongs making a right. The double qualities of beauty and evil possessed by this plant were truly, if sentimentally, summed up in a poem written by a north countryman who once worked for us, his mind being more ready to immortalize weeds in legends than his fingers to eradicate them from the paths. Not being familiar with the language of the sagas in which the verses were given me, I asked for an interpretation. The poet willingly dropped his hoe, clasped his hands, and choking with the emotional memory of his recent and first experience in poisoning by a gorgeous and deceitful vine that he had plucked and brought home over his shoulder, he began in a whisper, which rapidly arose to a shriek. Once there was a woman, very beautiful, tall, slender, and bending. She had a lovely color in her face and wild eyes that shot fire and were gray and green and golden at one time. Her robes wreathed about her and were more beautifully garnished than the spring fields. But she was false. Then for her punishment she was turned into a vine, wearing in its season the colors that her eyes had flashed. A vine so beautiful that all men desire to possess it, but deadly to the touch. The some are of such strength and good blood that they at first may handle it, yet they know not when their hour of trouble may come. Of the other two sumacs, the poison oak, or California poison sumac, occupies the same place in the west as the poison ivy does in the eastern part of the country. Its leaves are thicker and more rounded, but its manner of poisoning as well as the remedies for it are the same. The third, the poison sumac, though not having found its way as far west and not generally as common as the poison ivy, is doubly dangerous because it is less known and its poison is even more intense, often producing the symptoms of erysipelas. This plant, locally known as poison elder, poison ash, or poison dogwood, is found sometimes as a low bush, only a few feet in height, sometimes as an uneven tree of twenty feet or more. Its leaves are compounded of many leaflets, nine to fifteen, like those of other sumacs, though these leaflets are less pointed and suggest those of a young ash. 
Also, the leaflets do not lie flat to the central stalk, but are keeled, as it were, and curve up in a winged manner. In the early season, the leaf stems and middle veins are a pale pink. This is an important point to note when the fruit is absent. The berries of the poison sumac are greenish-white and hang down in loose bunches like stunted frost grapes. The berries of the harmless sumacs are red and held erect in solid pyramids. The poison sumac grows invariably in damp, if not absolutely marshy, ground. The harmless sumacs prefer dry and rocky soil. It is well for nature students to search out this shrub and identify it in its haunt for further avoidance, as it is one of the decorative bushes of autumn, whose leaves work sad mischief through being gathered to decorate houses and churches or for pressing. Many of the hillside folk call it bush ash and deny the poisonous qualities which they have never personally experienced. One day, when I was returning from a lone town excursion with the chaise full of the glistening leaves of the smooth sumac, a berry woman, with whom I had often had dealings, stopped me a very unusual proceeding, to exclaim, You'll be poisoned blind with that chumac, sure as you're alive. I explained its innocence to her, reasons, red berries and all, and warned her that a large bundle of branches, which she was carrying to decorate the schoolhouse for a harvest home supper, was chiefly composed of the true poison sumac. No, I was mistaken. What she had was just bush ash. She'd always picked it when she was a girl. A peddler told her the shiny kind was poison, and his mother was an herb doctor, and so he knew. Why, anybody could see that it was the poison that made the leaves shine. It all lay in a varnish on top. She proceeded on her way, but two weeks afterward I learned from time of year that the poor woman had nearly died of sumac poisoning. All of which proved that since the days when she had touched it freely, she had passed into middle life, that indefinite toll-gate on the road which had robbed her of the immunity of earlier days. In addition to these three sumacs, there are two plants, garden escapes, which contain both acrid, milky juice and berries that are highly poisonous. These are the caper spurge and its brother, which is sold in catalogues under the name of Snow on the Mountain. Both are related to the cypress spurge of old gardens, and resemble it in the shape of the flowers. The caper spurge has small greenish-yellow flowers, followed by showy, caper-like, three-seeded fruit. Snow on the mountain is an annual weed of the plains. Under cultivation it grows two or three feet in height, its lower leaves being green, oval, and pointed, while the upper clustering around the flowers are distinctly edged with white. Its milky juice is so intensely acrid and blisters the skin so readily that Texan stock raisers have been known to use it for branding cattle instead of the customary hot irons. This plant should be carefully excluded from gardens and dropped from seedsmen's catalogues, for I have seen the fingers of little children terribly scarred from picking it. It is also a menace to beekeepers, for a little of the pollen will render honey uneatable. Several of the goldenrods and ragweeds have pollen, 
which, when inhaled, has an irritating effect upon those liable to hay fever and catarrh, and the swamp sunflower of our waterways has earned its common title of sneezeweed from causing, by its pollen and dried blossoms, and irritations so mischievous as to make it akin to a poison. Everyone knows this cheerful, sunflower-like plant, with its thick, lance-shaped leaves, the flowers in a tufted center surrounded with toothed, wide-ended yellow rays, for it follows the waterways from Canada to the Gulf, and finds enough moisture to sustain it even in Arizona. Cattle may be affected by eating the young plants, or the flowers dried in hay, the result being a sort of asthmatic giddiness, and sometimes, in the case of young animals, death from convulsions. The tribe of Tasnot. Those plants should rank as most important that directly threaten the life of man. Among these, the death cup and fly amanita, water and poison hemlock, will stand first, second, third, and fourth. Jimson weed, fifth, as poisonous plants that are eaten from their resemblance to edible species of their various families, and which therefore are more to be feared than those plants eaten through a momentary attraction of fruit, or from the careless habit of chewing random leaves and twigs. The fly amanita and the death cup, amanita pibeloides, are primarily among the most conspicuous as well as the most deadly of fungi. The majority of the family are fatally poisonous, and every year sees the list lengthened of those who have died from eating some member of it. In spite of Hamilton Gibson's delightful book upon edible fungi, and Professor G. F. Atkinson's recent exhaustive studies of American fungi, mushrooms, edible, poisonous, etc., I would caution the novice to content himself with gathering the common meadow mushroom only. This is easy to place, with its nutty odor, white or slightly smoky top, pink to brown gills, according to the freshness of the plant, and a stem dwindling just below ground, and never set in a cup-like socket. I should advise him to let all other fungi entirely alone, no matter how edible some species may be under proper conditions. The more or less distinct cup-like setting to the stem is a good mark of identification to the fatal death cup for the novice. Let him avoid it. Fly amanita is the most picturesque and striking of our earth-growing fungi, and where it appears in profusion, as it does under the evergreens in our home grounds during the autumn months, it is a plant of decided landscape value, introducing gamboge, orange, and even vermilion into deep shade which, the season through, knows no other colors than the green of ferns and partridge vine, with the brown of leaf mold. This amanita is stout of stem and cap. I gathered some specimens last September that stood a foot high, and measured fourteen inches across the white-gilled cap, which varied through all shades of yellow to red, and was covered with cork-like warts. The swelled, scaly base of the stalk does not take a clearly marked cup shape, as in kindred forms. 
Fortunately, however, there is no chance of mistaking this gorgeous creature for the safe and Cinderella-like meadow mushroom. The plant is a deadly poison, whose juices are used in Europe as the basis of fly poisons, and when eaten by man, it means almost certain death by heart paralysis. Cattle are also affected by it, and it is unwise either to handle the plants or to risk inhaling their fumes while fresh or the spore dust when dry. I was made unpleasantly aware of the toxic qualities of fly amanita while taking the accompanying photograph at close range on a damp day, and thus spending half an hour or so in company of a double score of fungi. But even this rank amanita is less likely to cause trouble than its smaller, paler kinsman of the distinctly cup stem, the death cup. This has a smooth, satiny top, which may be either white, spotted, or tinted yellow. It also has white gills and a white stem. As a whole, at a casual glance, it does not look unlike a large meadow mushroom and for this reason is doubly dangerous. It also sometimes strays from its proper wood haunts to lawns and meadow edges. Remember the fatal cup at the root and the white gills. Remember also that a mere fragment is enough to kill a man, and beware of it, for there is no rank taste nor odor to give warning, and the poison does not begin to work until eight or nine hours after it has been eaten. Then all care is unveiling. Two plants of the carrot tribe follow in their turn, the water and the poison hemlock, well known to the ancients. The water hemlock is the commoner of the two. It is a smooth, straight herb, and has a spindle-shaped perennial root, a hollow stem, much divided compound leaves, and flat clusters of white flowers of the wild carrot and parsnip type. It grows in wet places and is therefore likely to be eaten by children who are hunting in spring for the roots of sweet Sicily. In the United States alone, this plant destroys many human victims annually, besides doing untold injury to cattle that drink from pools poisoned by its decaying roots. The poison hemlock proper has finer parsley-like leaves and a biennial root, its stem is purplish and spotted, thus tending to confuse it with the purple-stemmed angelica. This hemlock yields from its seeds and from the leaves at flowering time an alkali poison called conine, a drug well known to the ancients, and which furnished the death draught of Socrates. The dried seeds also cause mischief, as they are sometimes gathered by mistake for anise. The fifth plant, Jimson, Jamestown, Weed, or Stramonium, belongs to the nightshade, or, as it is now called, the potato family, a tribe containing plants of diverse attributes, good and evil. The tomato, potato, tobacco, henbane, and all the nightshades, of which the European species yielding belladonna is the most deadly. Common Stramonium is a rank plant of waste places, deserted back gardens and ash heaps, and therefore has many local nicknames, thorn apple from its prickly seed pods, stinkweed and Jamestown lily. 
It is also the white man's plant of the Indians. Near at hand, jimson weed is an unlovely herb four or five feet high, with coarse leaves and heavy-scented white five-ridged flowers of the tubular form of the morning glory. At a distance, it becomes one of the boldest of landscape plants, its great white blossoms standing out with startling effect from amid the dirt and confusion of its surroundings. Children sometimes eat the seeds or suck the sickishly sweet nectar, and cattle are injured by the leaves, which oftentimes find their way into fodder and hay. Bittersweet, wood, or climbing nightshade are the names given to a woody climber also belonging to the potato tribe. This vine, seldom growing more than eight or ten feet in length, is commonly seen from Massachusetts westward to Ohio, among the tangled shrubbery that follows brooks and ditches, though in the Lone Town region I have often found it trailing over stone fences in comparatively dry fields. It has coarse, thin leaves of two patterns, a custom of many herbs and trees, from the convolvulus to the sassafras, the lower leaves being of a strangely divided, heart-shaped form, the upper spear-like. The purple flowers, suggesting the type of the potato blossom, are followed by loose clusters of clear, bright red berries, which, though of a bittersweet flavor, are very attractive to children and are poisonous if eaten in any quantity. Black nightshade a near relative of this climber, is an annual herb two feet high, often found in old gardens and in cultivated soil that has been neglected. It has ovate leaves with waved edges, a small white flower of the typical nightshade pattern, and round, black, juicy berries that cause cramps and other unpleasantness to the human consumer. The plant itself should also be kept out of the reach of the smaller animals, such as sheep and calves. A curious fact concerning some cultivated plants of the potato family is that, while certain portions may be edible, other parts of the same plant are poisonous. Thus, the tuberous roots of potatoes are edible, but the seed pods, looking like little green tomatoes, are injurious, while with tomatoes it is the fruit-like seed pod that is eaten. Pokeweed is another rather poisonous plant, growing almost across the entire continent in moist places or where the drainage of compost and refuse heaps has enriched the ground. It is also locally called pigeonberry, garget, or red ink plant. This succulent herb with reddish-purple stems, large, coarsely-veined leaves, and long sprays of small white flowers which droop like the blossoms of the choke-cherry, springs from a tough perennial root, and, in a few months, will often grow to a height of eight feet. As the season advances, and the flowers are followed by berries, at first green, then passing through red to a purple-black, pokeweed gradually leaves the procession of weeds, and develops decided picturesque qualities, filling the corners of fields and pastures with its richly colored groups, and reaching over gray stone walls and old fences to dangle its fruit by the roadside. The fresh shoots of this plant are sometimes cooked by country folk in lieu of asparagus. Great care 
however, is necessary in the preparation thereof, and not a fragment of the root must be used, as it possesses strong medicinal properties, acting as a violent emetic, causing much distress and even death when it has been eaten by mistake for artichoke or horseradish. Though birds eat the berries quite freely, they are believed to be poisonous to humanity. False hellebore, the swamp plant with crumpled lily-like leaves and green flowers that we found growing with the skunk cabbage and adder's tongue by the brook in early spring, also carries poison in its berry, leaf, and root. It is harmful to chickens, horses, cattle, and man, certain people being especially prone to gather its young shoots and roots to use as greens in spring, a time when all such growths are difficult to identify by the untutored, and are therefore always to be avoided. The pretty purple-pink corncockle, or rose campion of old gardens, has now become a noxious weed to be uprooted wherever grain is grown. Though the whole plant contains an irritant poison, the seed does the most mischief when carelessly mixed with wheat, ground into flour, or mingled in any quantity with other grains or with fodder. The rough black seed coverings are easily detected, however, and wheat or rye seed, having a sprinkling of them, should be invariably be rejected. Of herbs, shrubs, and trees that affect grazing cattle more or less, there are twelve species, all of them of conspicuous growth. Among these are the dwarf, purple, and Wyoming larkspurs of the middle and extreme west, the first wearing blue or white flowers in spring, the second beautiful deep blue blossoms in summer, and the last, particularly common in the Montana grazing country, showing a single wand of intensely blue flowers from April to, from April to July, according to location. The injury done to stock by the woolly and stemless local weeds of the Great Plains has caused immense bounties to be paid for their extermination. Through these plants, horses, more frequently than range cattle, suffer from what is apparently a slow-wasting disease, ending in death as if by starvation. A similar poison is contained in the closely related rattlebox, a rough, hairy herb of the pea family, whose small yellow flowers bloom all summer, followed by short black pods in which the seeds can be heard to rattle. The range of the plant is westward from the Atlantic seaboard, and it is quite common in sandy and dry soil here in Connecticut. The Heath tribe distributes a poison particularly affecting the respiration. In mountain laurel, small laurel, or lambkill, rhododendron, staggerbush, and branch ivy, or calfkill. Staggerbush is a low shrub growing south of Connecticut, with thick leaves and handsome clusters of white, blueberry-shaped flowers. Branch ivy, with saw-toothed evergreen leaves and inconspicuous white flowers, have a nauseating odor, is unknown here, and is only troublesome in the Alleghenies between southern Georgia and West Virginia. Lastly comes black cherry, a graceful tree that has stepped out of its native forest in the middle Atlantic states to saunter along roadways, following fences across lots and quenching its thirsty roots at the pasture springs. 
In May and June, it waves its glossy green leaves and fragrant white flower sprays on every side. In early autumn, replacing these with brilliant foliage and bunches of pungent, juicy black cherries. Yet a fatal sort of beauty has black cherry, for, owing to that very quality and to the excellence of its fruit for compounding the delectable cordial called cherry bounce, few people dream of the mischief it may do to cattle until they are taught by at least one fatal experience. The green and growing leaves and branches are harmless, but when broken by the wind, as often happens, or in any way left to wither in a place where cattle can eat them, they become a source of danger. When cattle eat either withered leaves or branches, sickness always follows and frequently death from paralysis of the lungs, caused by the prussic acid in the tree. The same acid is what gives the pleasant and harmless flavor to the fruit juice, but at the same time, if the pits are swallowed by children and the kernels digested, the result is sometimes fatal. Birds devour these berries in quantities, but, as can plainly be seen, they digest the pulp alone, and the pit is passed unchanged. So much for the poisonous plants, few in number, easy to be identified, to be neither touched nor tasted, but visited in their haunts, while at the safe distance that knowledge spreads between us and them. We may enjoy the better part of their dual natures as, blended with worthier stuffs, they weave their varied patterns and hues into the endless garment of the magician. End of chapter 6